This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele on 101.9 High FM. A very good evening to all and welcome to tonight's installments of Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod Mbele. For those who have, uh, have for those who observe Valentine's, I hope it has been a pleasant uh, event. Um, for those who do not uh, observe Valentine's Day, um, I hope you have made your better half somehow feel comfortable and needed. Um, and I suppose that's how things goes. You know, we, there are people who observe these things, there are people who don't observe these things, whether voluntary or mandatory. We, we all have, you know, different appetites. You know, some people f- believe these kinds of things are highly commercialized, therefore there's no need. Um, I won't venture into putting my own views on this issue. Uh, I don't want to, you know, uh, you know, sleep in a couch tonight because my wife may not necessarily agree with me on this issue. Having said that, uh, if you missed our, you know, conversation last week, you're welcome to go to our website, www.highfm.com and retrieve the previous uh, uh, podcast. Give me your sense of what your thoughts are. Our SMS line is 34519. Telegram is 061. Eight nine one zero one nine, and of course my email address is nimrod at highfm.co.za. If you want to reach out through Twitter, by all means, it is uh, at highfm. Before you get into the gist of tonight's conversation, as a norm, it is important to acknowledge those who came before us. I want to say thank you, Simon. Thank you, Kathy. Of course, Sina and David, for keeping you guys well entertained over the past uh, couple hours or so. Uh, they are surely back tomorrow uh, doing the same thing and give them your love and support as always. Tonight we are unpacking uh, SONA, State of the Nation's Address. I'm sure everybody is aware of what is happening in empowerment. I've got my very I've got my very personal and passionate views about this issue, but I don't matter. You matter more than anything. Um, you know, obviously the debate, the SONA debate comes at the back of President Ramaphosa's uh, State of the Nation address that took place last week. I believe that it was his fourth State of the Nation address. And I want you to air your views on what is actually happening. Um, were you, during the State of the Nation address, the question for me is, were you inspired or were you depressed? Was the president, you know, on the mark? Or was he off the mark? Again, you know, give me your thoughts on three four five one nine one nine. Our telegram is oh six one eight nine five one zero one nine. And of course my email address is Nimrod at highfm.co.za. Before we get into the main cause of tonight's conversation, I've noted, you know, via media that uh, you know you, uh, uh, Adam Habib has resigned from Vets University as a vice chancellor. We are told that he will be vacating the position uh, by the end of the year. This for me begs the question, um, has VETS transformed, has VETS ascended to its, its former glory? Did Habib manage to transform the university? Where is VETS in the, in the world ranking at the, at, at the moment? I mean, you know, when I, I quickly had to recheck and say where VETS is based on different uh, ranking system, in Africa VETS is the second, lost its position from University of Cape Town last year. Um, that's supposed for me, we're not doing too badly as a former Vetsi. You know, I'm very passionate about that institution. The question, the, the following question for me is, where is Vets Business School? Well, it's not, um, as, as cush, it's, it's, it's not as privileged as the university as a whole. 
um, bear in mind that it used to be one of the best universities or best, one of the best business schools uh, some time ago. But I suppose um, not much loss happened there. Um, and I suppose, again, you know, given the stability of leadership at the university as well as at the school itself, we're more likely to see the university gaining its momentum, gaining its former prestigious position, because ultimately these kinds of rankings do matter. Of course, not at expense of quality, not at expense of equity, not at expense of transformation. You still have that obligation as an institution to drive equity, to drive a transformation to a point where um, the university reflect the demographics of the country. Where are we? Well, I suppose at some point, well, I'll try and get hold of Adam Habib and ask him these kind of questions before he, he vacates for the, for, for the UK. Um, I suppose that we're going to pastures for him. Um, it will be interesting to see how, how, how well, from his own personal point of view, on these kind of critical questions and what are the challenges that lie ahead for his successor. And what kind of advice would he give his successor? And of course, you know, when we picked up that he has resigned, uh, Twitter just went berserk. A lot of people said, well, well done, Adam, you've done very well. Others said, look, uh, thanks for going. But obviously, you know, it, it's everything is about context and political, political affiliation or, or inclination in these kind of issues. But be as it may, I'm sure we'll have a sense of where Vets University and where Vets Business School is in the greater scheme of things following his departure. But I must say it's not easy to be a vice chancellor in the 21st century, given the kind of challenges that we've seen um, throughout the country. But that's the that's the conversation for another day. Um, one of the things that we're gonna reflect on tonight is the, like I said earlier, is the state of the nation's address, and we're going to be joined on, on online by the CEO of um, the the South African, uh, uh, you know, Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Saki, uh, Alan Mukoki, whom I believe is on the line. Alan, good evening and welcome to the show. Good evening to you and good evening to your listeners as well. Thank you very much, Alan. Um, I don't know what happened. I really would have wanted to, to, to have you on live, I mean, live on the studio, but I suppose, uh, we have to do what we, what we have to do with. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry about that, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ellen. Um, you know, very quick question that I, I could not resist asking is your, you know, your reaction on what happened tonight. I mean, this afternoon at the State of the Nations address, before we really get into the, the core business, your, your overall impression of what is actually happening. Well, I think that it's uh, bound to happen because that's part of democracy, you know, uh, political contestation. Uh, but you asked me first about what happened in Parliament today. Before you answer, you asked me this second question. Mm-hmm. But I think the first question I was trying to answer is that it's part of what is always going to happen. The more there are problems in the country, the more you'll see a lot of divergence in terms of views and political contestation, posturing. Those are all part of what a democratic state ought to look like. As long as people are doing whatever it is that they are doing in a way that is within the rules, uh, when you violate the rules, of course, you know, the rule book will be thrown at you in terms of whether you stay or you leave. 
I don't think that we have anything to worry about in that particular regard. As long as things are being done in a way that's peaceful, there are no bombs that are exploding all over the place, uh, and there's generally political stability, freedom of expression. And so when people express themselves in however vibrant a way that they are, we ought to accept that as part and parcel <laughs> of two coins of the democratic process. I couldn't agree with you more, but with reservations, I mean, I, I, when I listened to, to what the leader of EFF said about the president in relation to gender violence, um, it, it, how does that add value to the democratic dispensation? Well, we don't get involved with that level of a discussion because it's up to the political parties to decide what exactly it is that is relevant or not. So we never get involved with that level of political uh, posturing, whether it's about personal accusations, whatever the case might be. As long as the law works, as long as people are operating within the policy and the rules, then, you know, it is what it is sometimes. Am I not glad to hear that kind of uh, a testimony from you, Ellen? Uh, now let's get to the gist of the business. I mean, when we listened to the president last week, I thought from a personal point of view, the State of the Nation's address was probably one of the best address in our time, for it was concrete, it presented a very balanced uh, views, and there's certainly a, a, a conspicuous voice about business. Overall, before we get into the nitty-gritties, what has been overall impression from a business point of view in terms of the State of the National Address? Well, I think that the first one for us was the recognition that the matter is urgent. Yeah, I think that the speech tried to live up to the level of urgency, which is a very different thing. In other words, this acknowledgement, because it's very easy for sometimes for politicians to fall uh, onto the other side, where they, maybe they deny things, they don't acknowledge that things are bad, etc., etc. They try to brush them or try to give a different uh, justification or rationalization of what exactly it is that is happening. However, you got a sense that the president was very honest in his acknowledgement of the things that are wrong and the things that need to be fixed. So that is one aspect of it. The fact that, you know, when they say when an alcoholic, the first thing, the first route to wellness is the acknowledgement that, yes, indeed, I am an alcoholic. Now we can work with you. But if you're still in denial about the problems that you're facing, it's going to be very difficult because you yourself are not uh, acknowledging the difficulties that you're having. So I think that the president came out very clearly in that particular regard, at least. He also, I thought, had some very good ideas on fighting the fires, which are generally the short-term fires around, we need to do something around the youth, we need to fix the energy space, we need to make sure that the issues around ESCOM can be fixed. I'm not talking about his solutions, whether they were okay or not okay. I'm just saying the acknowledgement that here is a problem that is causing a problem with unemployment, uh, you know, business is struggling, um, the issue of tariffs. And, and, and coming up with what he considers to be solutions to the problem, at least the immediate problems that we're facing in the country. No, thanks for that insight, um, Alan. But overall, from a business confidence point of view, because this is one of the biggest issues that, um, you know, business folks like yourself constantly reflect to and say, we do not have business confidence. Overall, does the speech, uh, you know, provide some kind of confidence in terms of uh, economic structural issues that needed to be addressed? Where do you sit on that particular issue? Well, look, as I said, short-term, yes. But remember, the problems of South Africa are not short-term. The problems of South Africa are long-term. That's the first point that you need to we not need to acknowledge. The second part is about attitude, habits, behavior of the South African. 
as a citizen. The, the complexity of the South African condition, uh, the problems of South Africa, so to speak, are so complex that they have moved ahead of the level of competence, skill, and experience that you would generally find in an elected official who happens to be a politician. In other words, what I mean by that is that this huge reliance that South Africa as a nation is placing on the shoulders of one man or of a political party or a political system is a mistaken belief that politics alone or the president alone should come with all the solutions in respect of how to solve the very complex nature of these particular problems. And they come from a whole range of different places, including the very history of colonialism and apartheid that impoverished and actually took us far back in respect of not having sufficient uh, people who have the level of skills and, and competencies who can start their own businesses and create these jobs that we, we so desperately need and grow the economy. So the problems are long-term and they need long-term planning and long-term solutions. On that score, we haven't heard much from the resource plan around those plans. In other words, we did produce the National Development Plan in 2012, but somehow you get a sense that the government has a very ambivalent um, schizophrenic uh, relationship with the very same National Development Plan. Since then, the, ma- the world itself had moved, as you recall. We used to talk about the, the Millennium de- Development Goals that uh, the United Nations used to talk about. And in 2015, the United Nations changed tack and they started to adopt the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And just to mention a few of those goals, what are they? Zero hunger is one of them. And to poverty is the other. Quality education is another. Um, good health and well-being is another. Uh, gender equality is another. Uh, access to clean water and sanitation is another. Access to clean and affordable energy is another. Industrialization, innovation and infrastructure, uh, decent work and, uh, and, and e- economic growth, you know, uh, reduced inequalities. So all these things, you know, climate change and all these things are now part of the new story of how we say South Africa, if it wants to be a developed economy, in other words, less than eight, I think, non-Western countries in the last 200 years have moved from developing status to developed economies. So less than eight. You count in those Taiwan, Japan, uh, Russia, Australia, uh, Israel, as a matter of fact, the old Hong Kong, you know, uh, as I said, South Korea. So those are the countries that you would think the seven or so countries that have moved from developing to developed in the last 200 years. That says to us the challenges are much more bigger. But if you then look at the United Nations SDGs, those 17 factors, these are the things that we ought to be working on to move South Africa from this developing economy to a developed economy. Because only by doing that will we be able to make a huge impact in the three big challenges of poverty, unemployment, and, uh, and inequality. So I'm saying that from a long-term point of view, if we do not work on those things yet, we do not set the plan that says now when we go to SONA every year, we're measuring performance and progress against those particular objectives and outputs. We will then continue to fight the fire because there's a, a small little a problem at ESCOM, crime is up. So yes, of course, the state of the nation has got to address the immediate issues and the priorities. But at the same time, it's got to be able to tell us a very clear view. If you said last year I want to grow my business by 50 million 
and this year you grew by 34 million. We need to say, but the target was 50 last year, we're 34, we're 16 short. What are the root causes of the 16 and what are we going to do to plug the gap on the 16? We're not having that part of the conversation yet in the state of the nation address. And now remember, there aren't too many opportunities for the president to really address uh, the country. So we need to get to that space where we say we have a vision and our vision is that we want to be a developed nation in the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, people like Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore managed to do it in 30, 35 years. Uh, China is moving towards that direction. They're not yet a developed country, but people say 10 years maybe from now, them and Brazil are probably get to, going to get into that. So we have to work to specific targets in respect of what exactly is this that we're going to do. And I think that that aspect of it was still a little bit short, number one, and then number two, we're still not yet taking the most aggressive of action. So even when we say we want to build a capable state, we are not really creating a proper plan. So a capable state is not something that you can demand of people. So if I ask you, what do you mean by a capable state? You say you're going to demand that there is no corruption. You are, well, is corruption the main issue around capable state? It may not be. It may be. So we need to have a very clear diagnostic tool that says, okay, when we say capable, we mean people that are going to be selected and recruited and retained on the basis of what measurement of attributes of qualifications, of experience, of proven performance track record. And if we then say this is the template, we go ahead and do exactly that. It means we must remove people who don't fit that profile. We must now put in people who meet that profile. If we say we're going to do something around training and development, coaching and mentoring in the civil service, we must be able to say here is a plan. We built a, a, a big college, or we've done a deal with uh, higher institutions of learning, we're going to raise the levels of skills of people. In other words, training the right people. When we say performance management, we have a very clear plan how we intend to run that. Not that we say there's a department for performance monitoring and evaluation, but we don't actually quite know what do you mean. So the president says he's going to sign performance agreements, but we don't know whether that performance management system is the best of breed in the world to deliver the type of capability in the state that we're actually talking about. So I'm saying that even from an HR point of view, when you say capable state, long before you deal with the issues of the values of people who are who people who have integrity, you need to have a very clear template. How do we hire people around here? Who does the hiring of people? When you say SOEs, we've made this point very clearly, even more so controversially to say we do not actually believe as business, at least as Saki, that the state ought to continue to be doing the appointments of boards of SOEs because we don't necessarily think that there is a level of capability there. So we suggest that we should create an independent JSC type, Judicial Services Commission type body that will now look at the nominations and the appointment of board members to SOEs. Number one, just because you own something doesn't mean you should run it. So government must get out of the operational side of SOEs, even if they own, right? So that we now say, here's an independent body that's going to nominate and appoint board members, and those boards will now go and find the best skills that are available to hire the executives. Not that the executives must now report to a minister or to a government, or the board must report to a government. It doesn't work like that. So you want to really say, I want to avoid privatization, but I'm going to go for commercialization, and then I'm going to go for proper governance, because that's how you create a capable state. If you don't do that, you don't have a plan to do that, you can talk until you're blue, because you'll only have one template. My template, let's, let me remove corruption. Now, who told you if you remove corruption, the state is going to be capable? Because if you don't deal with the issue of competence, you are still going to find yourself that you are short. So 10 years from now, we'll be discussing another issue of competence and not corruption. But the state's own enterprise is still not working. The public service system is still not functioning at an optimal level.
No, thanks for that, for, for that heads up, um, Ellen. But, you know, one of the things that I think you have highlighted, which the president alluded to, is the whole notion of social compact. And I believe that, you know, personally you can give me your, your, your view on this. Do you think the social compact, which brings labor, government, and civil society organization, is the best, best platform, um, uh, as President alluded to? In terms it's of important to do. Mm. It's important to do it, but it's not a benchmark. It's important to do it, it's not a benchmark. And let me give you a very clear view on that. Number one, you can delay the process by over-consulting. The difficulty, of course, with the nature of the constitutional arrangement around either, say, for instance, the ruling party at this point in time, is that the president of the ANC does not have executive powers. The president of the ANC uh, is subordinate to his NEC, where the powers lie in the ANC. There are few positions in the top six which give you only administrative power, but not executive leadership power. So the president of the ANC cannot fire people there, except those who report directly to him. And none of the top six people report to the president. Right? That's a problem. Because this is your ex but you didn't put it together. They are all independently elected into those particular positions. And then you come to the republic itself, where you and I are voting for the political party. So whoever is going to end up being the state president is going to be a deployee of the political party. Whether it's the ANC, it doesn't matter. Whether it's the EFF, it doesn't matter. Whether it's the DA, whether it's the IFP, whether it's the Freedom Front, they will be a deployee of that particular party, which means they subordinate themselves to the collective of that particular party. Whether you like Donald Trump or you don't like Donald Trump, fact of the matter is that Donald Trump is an executive president that Cyril Ramaphosa is not. I come from the leadership school that says you cannot hold people accountable if you don't give them responsibility. Ask yourself a question. Let's assume the president was actually an executive president, accountable only to the electorate, not to his political party. We then can hold him accountable for his performance because he put together his own executive team. Right now, he cannot put together a team without constantly looking behind his shoulder whether his NEC colleagues that he reports to approve of his decisions. That creates a problem of accountability because you now have to work with the template that's been given to you and you can only work with the people that have been given to you by your own political party. Trump can go outside of his Republican party. He's not accountable to them. He can go and hire the best minds that he can find and fire them. Well, in his style, fire you and insult you at the same time as they did with uh, Tillerson. Fired him and then called him as dumb as a rock. You can't do that. If you're Cyril Ramaphosa, now can you? So the point I'm making is that the president of South Africa is restricted and the political arrangement, both at the republic level as well as the ruling party political level, is not the right model, in my personal view, to run the South Africa of today. You need to have a Lee Kuan Yew executive president who can take decisions, who can hold himself and we can hold him accountable. Because we know if the things don't work out, we can go to the president, remove him and put someone else. So therein lies the problem. And you can't simplify it and say, well, it's as easy as... If the president of the ANC does not work out, we can always remove the ANC. It's very complex in the context of South Africa and the history of apartheid, because the ANC is always going to be stronger. The, the, the black people in South Africa who have suffered the most against apartheid in terms of location, they happen to be those black people who are in the agri-towns and the mining towns. That's why you saw the brutality of apartheid more than in any other place. And that's why you'll find that a ruling party like the ANC tends to be strongest in those areas. Yeah? Why? Because the people they have got genuine serious issues, they are the people whose land was dispossessed. They've seen the real raw level of racism and brutality. 
So they're always going to need to find something that they can hang on to. So you have a situation very decidedly that says you'll always have the stronger institutional type political party system that works. But is that very good for the republic? No, it's not. And the way to get around that is to say maybe the time has come for us to look at some of the recommendations that the late Professor Fancel Slabet had made around how we rewire and rejig the political representation system so that we can also get to a point uh, even at the level of the uh, executive president where we can elect him directly and then maybe yes, yes, the political party will also win an election but maybe we'll create a very different structure in the chamber, maybe the political party controls the, the other house like the council of provinces and maybe by the national assembly we elect all those people directly ourselves so that we can hold people accountable so I'm saying therefore this thing that has happened in South Africa creates this problem where you must over consult you must go to Nadlec, you must go and talk to big labor talk to big business and when are you going to take a decision when you are caught in that system here's ESCOM as a, uh, for example you and I know that they are overstaffed you and I know that for the level of power that they generate they have far more, many people now, maybe 10, maybe 15,000 people more than they need to have. How are you as the executive president of the country going to take a decision to get rid of the 10,000 or the 15,000 people at ESCOM if you are busy consulting? So the system in South Africa now says go talk to big labor, talk to big business, talk to big community groups, talk to everybody else. And you are never going to get any consensus in that particular space. So I'm saying these things are situational and functional at the same time. No, you know, you've, you've raised very uh, uh, pertinent issues, um, Ellen. I'll, I'll tell you what, we're going to take a break and come back in a second. Just hold on. Before we go, when you come back from the break, I want just to maybe thresh out the whole issue of the, 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 the envisage, um, you know, a dispensation from where you're sitting based on the issues that you've raised that the current president does not have executive powers and how do we get to a point for especially from business because business has power the extent to which business is being listened to by government let's take a break we'll come back in a second this is beyond governance with dr nimrod mbele on 101.9 high fm Welcome back. It is now 20 to 7. It's amazing how time flies, especially when you're really having fun with the likes of uh, Ellen Mukoki, who's just joined us on the line, giving us really a very exciting and rich context or texture of of his understanding of where the country ought to be going. Before we went to the break, I wanted to perhaps maybe just to reflect briefly on the 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 extent to which government is likely to turn around, particularly on the the point of capable state. And I, I agree with you. Capable state, you don't demand it. Capable state, as a as as a frame of reference, it it has its own political dynamics because there are people that will be there who do not necessarily fit the purpose. You need to do all stuff around performance agreement. You have to do all stuff around competencies that are required at a particular level. Exactly. And and some of these competencies that you might want to may not necessarily be available because of cater deployment. So now, how do we change that kind of environment to a point where we, you know, bearing in mind that the political system that we're sitting at, um, yes. what is the voice of Saki in terms of advising government to address this very uh, uh, endemic problem, as you, as you put it? Yes, look, we've made this point uh, already of, number one, everyone knows for you to drive uh, leadership, organization and change, you need to confront the beast, you need to do a proper diagnostic of where your root causes are. We know the root causes. 
some of which are those things that you've just mentioned. Cater to, by the way, there's nothing wrong with cater deployment, provided you're deploying the right people. Because what we talk about, the right people, right people, right culture, right values. In other words, if I'm saying I'm deploying, but I've got a template around which I hire, as I said earlier on, when it comes to, I like to call it this AAV in leadership. In other words, A stands for ability. How do you measure ability? Qualifications, right? Uh, the ability to do the actual work, the training and the development the individual has actually received, uh, the level of competence, the skills that they actually have, and the performance track record. So that's nothing unusual about that. It's not rocket science. Just hire the right people. But having hired the right people, you, write, you hire on the A side, you hire the right people in terms of the, the, the next A, which is attitude. Because some people, for instance, may well be gifted and talented and highly educated, but have a very lousy attitude. You don't need people uh, like that around here. So from an, an attitudinal point of view, you're able to evaluate that template to say, we want people here who've got high energy, high passion, who can energize others, people who understand complexity, people who've got an execution mentality. That's attitude, because you're now putting together a very clear set of attributes around what you mean when you say, I'm hiring the right person. And then thirdly, on the V side, the values. It's all about the values in the end. Are these people who actually subscribe and understand what integrity means, right? As an old definition of integrity is doing the right thing when no one else is looking. So the values, let's look at this person's values. Do they have respect for themselves and for other people and other colleagues and for the system? Do they have a level of accountability and responsibility? Can you hold them accountable? Or these are the kinds of people who've got in psychology, they call it people who are successful, they've got a very strong internal locus of control. Because these are people who say the buck stops with me. People who are unsuccessful, they tend to have a very strong external locus of control. Even though they may be talented and highly skilled, but they like to blame other people for all sorts of problems that arise. Instead of saying, I'm taking responsibility, you walk into an office, a phone belonging to a colleague who's out at the water cooler is ringing, you walk past because it's not your phone. You're not responsible. But if you're responsible, you go answer the phone, take the message. When the colleague comes back, please call so-and-so. When you yourself, it's now your turn to go to the water cooler, you go past the colleague. By the way, did you call so-and-so because I left a message for you? So you take, it's all the small little things, the small little hygiene things. So I'm saying, when we say right people, we can define what we mean. When we say right culture, we can also define what it means. So even though you may have a deployment committee, but what is the culture? The culture of hiring people who are technically competent, the culture of hiring people who have organized minds, the culture of hiring people who understand complexity, the culture of people of hiring people who've got an execution mindset. That's culture. Culture simply means the way we do things around here. If you study organizations and you study how successful organizations operate, the comparative strategic advantage is not who has skills. Everybody goes to the same school. Everybody wants to use it. You spoke about that earlier on. Everybody wants to, to vet. Everybody studied the same PSC engineering in electricity or in, in, in mechanical engineering. Everybody wrote the same board, whether they wanted to be an accountant or they wrote the same bar exams when they wanted to be a lawyer. So you're not going to find strategic advantage there, but what works in organizations is culture, the way we do things around here. A culture that's empowering, a culture that can attract the right people, and a culture that can get rid of people if they're not the right people in the organization. Jack Walsh, who used to run GE, used to say this, there are four types of people in an organization if you need to choose whether these people should stay or go. He used to say, number one, there are these people who are not living the values and they are not performing. That's easy. Get rid of them. Then there are these people who leave the values and they also are performing. Easy. Retain them. Reward them, incentivize them. They need to be in the organization. Then thirdly, there were these people who leave the values, 
but they are not performing. He says, give them a chance. See whether it's a question of performance improvement. See whether you need to train and develop more. See whether you need to coach, mentor more. Whatever the case might be, but give them a chance. If it doesn't work over a period of time, then get rid of them. And then there's a fourth category of people that are very interesting and challenging. These are the people who shoot out the lights when it comes to performance. They can perform, outperform everybody, but they don't leave the values. And Jack Walsh used to say, get rid of them yesterday. Because those people on their way to that huge performance are going to be breaking people's knees, collecting the money. They are going to steal. They're going to cheat. They're going to be robbing your own suppliers. Eventually, they toxify the environment and they damage the entire ecosystem of your organization where it operates, suppliers, customers, and staff. So the point I'm making about that is that all these things are things that you can define when you say right people, right culture, right values. Even if you are doing that within the deployment committee, what the culture of the deployment committee says, this is the template. And when you have that template and you mix it up with the values of integrity, you will know I will not only hire because integrity doesn't allow me. I will not hire an ANC person or an EFF person or a DA person when, in fact, my template says I must hire the best. So if the best person is with a DA or the EFF, I'm going to hire them. But, but, but okay. if the best person comes outside, I will hire the outside person because integrity demands of me. In- to be interesting able to observation. That. Interesting observation, Alan, on that score. Now that the president has made a pronouncement that he'll be signing performance contract, you know, what will your advice be, particularly around this AAV, as we've put it out? Because I think it's a very useful template, but whether is it applicable or whether there'll be an appetite, now that we're obviously operating in a very political space that is highly charged, wherein the president does not have the, the executive authority that you've pointed out to. How do we, in the context of him signing performance contract, because we're not, we're not in a space nothing, of just performance, of compliance. Nothing, we know performance nothing of, is you. I've, I've mentioned to you countries that have done it, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan. That's what they did. None of those places have got a serious endowment of natural resources. What do they do? They trained and they revolved and they cha- drove change, leadership change and management and organizational change and, 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 and management around what they did with people. So they were always going to go for the best. China is doing a lot of that as we speak right now and making a lot of serious in, in, in advancements in innovation and technology and what the future may well look like. So these are not things that we're saying that other people have not done. Israel has done that very beautifully. There is absolutely nothing wrong with South Africa adopting those principles because what, who do you want to be like? When you grow up, you want to be like guys that are successful when you're growing up in the township. Go and see their behavior, look at their habits, look at their attitude. Look at these guys who will leave a soccer game in the middle because they have to study and do the homework. But look at the other guys who say, well, I'm busy playing football now. But, but Ellen, Ellen well, if it is not rocket science, okay, as you've pointed out, me? if it's not rocket science, why is it taking, why is it like a teething exercise for the South African government to adopt what is, what appears to be very basic? Well, it may appear to be basic, but it's not as basic as it appears. I said earlier on to you, in the last 200 years, only less than eight countries have actually moved from developing to developed. So when you study organizations and you study those particular countries that you see, so it's not rocket science to everybody else. Also, people get caught up in this Johari window that we always talk about, which gives you the four quadrants. Number one, there are things that you know about yourself and other people know about yourself. So that's fine. That's safe. Number two, there are things that other people don't know about you, but when are you know about yourself? That's also reasonably safe. But number three, there's this box that creates a problem. There are things that other people know about you, but you don't know those things about yourself, right? And that's an area of feedback. That's where you need to focus on 
what is this that I need to know? But there's more even a scarier box that uh, Donald Rumsfeld spoke about so many years ago and said, these are the unknown unknowns. These are the things that you don't know about yourself and other people also don't know about you. So these are the things that the unknown unknowns creates a very serious problem around development and leadership uh, 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 capability and competences because there's nothing wrong in not knowing something. But if you don't know what you don't know, then that's a very serious problem. And that's culture. So if you change the design, you've got to start with culture. Change the culture so that you have a template of culture that is proper. So you say, well, these are not some things that are very uh, uh, rocket science. Well, to some people, they're rocket science if they don't know what they don't know. And in a number of cases, if you're never giving people the opportunity for training and development and coaching, they may not even know that they need to know this stuff. So therefore, that's why you need to then build a system that is going to do that. Where the state right now, if you say, are you capable? You look at all the Munichs and you look at the AG report around the municipalities, you find that a huge proportion of them actually got disclaimers or qualified audits. What is that telling you? It's telling you there's a fundamental problem with people at the center. So that we can change the system in a way in which, because if you don't do this kind of work, then you're not going to do anything. You're not going to have any achievement. Absolutely. Look, I mean, Ellen, you did not, uh, um, you know, uh, disappoint as always. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on board, Thank giving so us much. very interesting, thought-provoking issues around the unpacking of the State of the Nation address uh, in respect to, among others, that, you know, what does it take for the state to be capable? How, what do we mean by a capable state and the extent to which a capable state can actually drive transformation agenda, as it were? Thank you very much, and uh, it has been a Thank pleasure so having much. you. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. There you have it. That's Alan Mukoki, who's the CEO of uh, South African Chamber of Commerce, giving us blah, 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 his take from a business point of view in terms of how the state of the nation uh, pans out and, and what are the firm recommendations which he himself want to put forward. The question is, does the states have an audience? Government has an audience or an ear for business? If the government has an ear for business, surely by now we need to see some bit of traction. I was just about joined by, uh, you know, a regular voice on, on, on the show, Eric Stillamit. Welcome. Hi, uh, how are you, Nimrod? Good and you. Your take, I mean, I mean, I think he was on fire. He was yes. on point on so many issues. No, it was an absolute delight to listen to Alan, and I'm pleased to, to have heard him. Um, I would have liked to engage further with him, and perhaps we can set up a follow-up because uh, with that kind of uh, expertise in in the business sector among our leaders, uh, it, it 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 can be harnessed to good effect. Um, I don't know what he said about his basic take or what your earlier discussion was on Sona. Do you want to give me a quick synopsis because I've got my own views? Look, I mean, he, essentially he's he's um, saying I mean, we're not really moving anywhere because the kind of politics that we've seen in Sona. Are expected mm. purely because the, purely because of our of our electoral system, we need to get to a point where we don't appoint uh, a political party. We appoint executive people that uh, we will hold them accountable. He referred to the uh, view held by the late uh, Professor Van Zale, wherein said we need to move to a dispensation which 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 recognise individuals as 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 thought, as thought leaders or people that can be held accountable directly. Um, and he juxtaposed the president's authority to that of Donald Trump, for an example, that I, Cyril does not have executive power. The executive power sits elsewhere. And that undermines the, you know, his, his authority because the top six, that's where the real power sits. Because he can't appoint 
any other people without consulting. So his biggest problem is this consultation paralysis. Because when you are called to, to uh, you know, to consult labor business on even issues that you feel that you have to take a, a decision, you can't take a decision, but you have to, you know, uh, get somebody else to, you know, okay it. Hmm. Okay. Um, I, I see it a bit differently. Uh, I haven't heard any positive comments on the State of the Nation address. Uh, I, I've looked. I've looked at all the analysis. Most people say, you know, that that he didn't really advance and that it was lacking, um, and and didn't have the action plans that that uh, people are looking for and that the country needs right now. Um, you know, <coughs> Alan is also alluding to that. Uh, I, uh, I mean, people say it's much ado about nothing, and then I, I, I absolutely, I thought it was, I thought it was a very um, positive and encouraging state of the nation. I listened to it in great detail um, after Julius left <laughs> left the <laughs> chamber, um, and I then, you know, in preparation for today's discussion. I went and read it in detail again, and I don't think people actually listen and read, because I went through, I've got a whole long list of things, initiatives and projects and action plans that he covered in terms of all the expectations that people have got, all the issues that people have addressed. He's put them on the table there. He's given some detail, not all the detail that needs to be there, and he's left a lot to, to Tito Mboweni in the budget because so much depends on how much you're going to invest in different projects and activities and initiatives. Look, for me, I agree with you, yeah. Alan. I mean, for me, I think it was a breath of fresh air. Yes. In term, when, when you compare it with previous states of the nation address, yeah. it was very practical. Yeah. And there were certain elements, for an example, energy mix. Mm. You know, I think he provided guidance and Absolutely. leadership on those on point and points. Um, in issues around land, I think he was very, you know, pointed. And issues around SOE transformation, um, he was quite spot on. But the only thing that perhaps maybe majority of people felt, which I concur with, that, you know, when you are delivering state of the nation address, um, you don't move from a zero base. You have to acknowledge what is it that you have promised in the previous uh, state of the nation address because you need to give account on those kind of pronouncements that you've made. But if you're not going to refer back to say, this is what I promised last year, this is where we are, this is what I promised, this is where we are, let, let me th- go. Th- th- that, that is a legitimate expectation uh, from the from electorate. I, I think that's the theme that he presented here. We're now on to a program of action with performance agreements that we'll monitor and measure and, and, and you know get detailed progress reports as we go. Um, just to touch back on the, the issue of consultation and the social compact, I think that, uh, uh, you know, Cyril succeeded. Cyril has succeeded in the first year and a half to two years in actually consolidating his position within the ANC as the NEC. That's the, I've mentioned it before on this program. That is the Name of the game in this country. When you're elected by a narrow 1% or less than 1% of your party, and they can kick you out and recall you if you don't make the right moves. He's managed to consolidate. Ace Mahashule came out of parliament saying, 
wow, we are now motivated to get on with the job. Everyone is behind him in on his side of the fence. Not only that, through the NEDLAC process, and I kept a very keen uh, eye out for that because I've been involved in NEDLAC to, to an extent, where business, labor, and, and, and government consult with each other on the initiatives that they can all back. And they've got a whole series of issues on investment, on sector plans, on jobs, on, on, uh, tourism, on the, uh, you know, a, a number. In fact, I wanted to ask Alan because I'm sure Alan Makoki would be involved as part of SACI and as part of Business Leadership South Africa in working with the president, you have to have business on board as the main players in the economy. You have to have labor on board, otherwise they'll just go and strike and toy toy and destroy everything. So to my mind, that's, he's, he's actually winning with this consultative leadership, democratic leadership style, and we're on to a new phase now. Even when it comes to state-owned enterprises, what he was saying is we're now moving beyond Consolidation and stabilization of state-owned enterprises. Yes, we've got issues, but Andre de, de Kater has clearly given an indication there's now a new agenda in terms of where energy is going, in terms of making up the deficit to avoid load shedding, in terms of maintenance, in terms of uh, the, the independent power uh, purchase agreements with alternative energy. We're going to win this game. So to my mind, it was a very, very fruitful state of the nation, and I'm very much looking forward to the budget. Yep. And by the way, on economic strategy, which people were looking for, he's endorsed, and everyone else has endorsed, mm. Tito's economic strategy, which is now going to quantify in the budget. My last part in short, um, yes. um, Eric, if you, if, if you may. Um, we understand all the. You know, I agree with you, the president um, has sort of somehow gain traction in terms of his uh, you know views and trajectory and and we see more of stabilization at the leadership level which is quite good but i think the what ellen has raised is very fundamental in that we still do not have what it takes from a from a competent and capable state unfortunately we're not, we don't have much time that's one topic that we need to unpack very clearly because without competent skills and understanding of what it takes, you know, from a values point of view, because one thing that he raised that which I con completely agree with him, it is the appetite, I mean the values, <coughs> attitude of individuals who have been given responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And what happens? Because you can have skills, you can have competencies, but if your attitude is misplaced, what happens? The, you know, look no further. The the state the the um, uh, commission of inquiry into the state capture does speak to the issues of attitude and competences. Unfortunately, we we're gonna have to leave it there. Yeah. But you're putting short as we. But I think it was a fantastic, um, you know, uh, assessment of of state of the affairs, and and the the country is definitely moving forward. There's a lot of new optimism that is emerging, not just optimism that is just euphoric, if you may. It is optimism that is. Associated with some level of tangible stuff that we can look for. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go through the state of the nation with you just now. Some of the points that are really worth talking about, we can follow up in the in the weeks to come. 
absolutely. Thanks, Thank yeah. you very much, Eric. You too. I, I hope you have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation tonight, and I think we really, um, you know, the kinds of debates and issues that we, from time to time, we, we, bring, we bring forward are indeed uh, shaping the narrative that we all can be proud of. Um, you know, I must say what happened today in Parliament, I'm sure most people did not like that, and I still did not like it. It's part of democracy, but it, it is what it is. But ultimately, let's move away from, you know, uh, small things that really built. Let's look at the content, the substantive issues around economy. We're not growing as economy. That should be the obsession for almost everybody. In fact, everyone, let alone, you know, other issues that are irrelevant. Until we meet again, it has been an absolute pleasure. Let's do this again next week.